0: This evening I'd like to reflect more upon the theme of impermanence. I'd like to begin with a poem. It's called Adios. Adios, it's a good word rolling off the tongue. No matter what language you were born with, use it, learn where it begins. The small alphabet of departure. How long it takes to think of it, then say it, then be heard. Marry it more than any golden ring, it shines, it shines. Wear it on every finger till your hands dance, touching everything easily, letting everything easily go. Strap it to your back like wings or a kite tail, the stream of air behind a jet. If you are known for anything, Let it be the way you rise out of sight when your work is finished. Think of things that linger, leaves, cartons, and napkins, the damp smell of mold. Think of things that disappear. Think of what you love best, what brings tears into your eyes. Something that said adios to you before you knew what it meant or how long it was for. Explain little, the word explains itself. Later, perhaps, lessons following lessons, like silence following sound. I think this poem speaks to the first of the great contemplations taught by the Buddha. Some people call it basic Buddhism, or Buddhism 101. And yet it's interesting that throughout the life of the Buddhist teaching, he sat surrounded by people, men and women, who were enlightened, and he taught impermanence. And it's a teaching that can really be summed up in a single statement. All things will change and pass. We know this as a certainty. It doesn't occur to us to question whether a person will die or not. We know it is unarguable. It doesn't occur to us to believe that there are parts of our lives that are exempt from change. We know this is not so. Our friends and our enemies, our happiness, our pain, the good, the bad, all the thoughts that run through our mind, all the emotions we experience, everything we see and hear and touch and taste, everything is always changing. Nothing will last. There is nothing that we can call our own. There is nothing that will stand still us. Patrul Rinpoche wrote, have you ever on earth or in the heavens seen a being born who will not die or heard that such a thing had happened or even suspected that it might? Impermanence is no surprise to us. It's, It's a fact that is not new, it is not astounding to us. What is perhaps astounding is that although that we know the truth of change on every level of our being, we can still manage to live our lives in which that knowing does actually really not affect our attitudes or how we live our lives. Although we know we are going to die one day, And we don't know when, and we don't know how. We live, as someone once wrote, that like death is like the sound of distant thunder while we're at a picnic. We find ourselves living as if we have all the time in the world, as if we're going to be here forever. We find ourselves hoping and worrying about the future almost as if we feel entitled to an unlimited future. We find ourselves struggling incessantly with our preoccupations, as if somehow they really warrant far more attention than how we are living our life in this moment. Amnesia is the outcome of the resistance to the reality of change. And it is to counter the depth of this amnesia that we are encouraged over and over again to contemplate the rhythm of arising and passing, moment to moment. We're encouraged to contemplate the countless small births and deaths in every day, the beginnings and endings, the rhythm of change and impermanence that informs all things in Inwardly and outwardly, we're taught that while standing or sitting or lying down or walking, tell yourself that this is your last act in this world. Whatever you think, whatever you see, whatever you feel, whatever you experience, tell yourself this does not belong to me. This too will pass. Whatever appears, remind yourself that this too will fade. Whatever begins, tell yourself that this too will end. We're encouraged to know this deeply and then to ask ourselves how we wish to live this moment. The Dalai Lama, in teaching about impermanence, encouraged his students to realize, to reflect on, and to realize what could disappear. We could expand that encouragement to actually reflect on and to realize what has already disappeared and what will disappear. What will disappear is everything that we are experiencing right now, this aching body at some point will be a memory. The people and the events that we're preoccupied with right now will fade, and at some point we will wonder how we ever could have been so embroiled and so entangled. In truth, this body and this mind will disappear and all that will be left will be the story about us. The people we love and the people we hate, those we fear and those we long to be with, will in the passage of time disappear. It is a simple truth. There is from the Buddha, that whatever is born is impermanent and is bound to die. Whatever is stored is impermanent and is bound to run out. Whatever is joined is impermanent and is bound to part. Whatever is built is impermanent and is bound to collapse. Whatever goes up is impermanent and is bound to fall down. I think it really only takes a little reflection for us to take the measure of all that has already disappeared in our life, our infancy, our childhood, the people we have loved and those we have lost, the passions that at different times have consumed us in our life. Think of the countless thoughts we have had. And the countless mental states and emotions we have had through our lives, where are they now? What are we meant to do with this understanding? We could find it very depressing. We could conclude that it renders all of our acts and all of our relationships and our aspirations meaningless. We could find in that light of that depression, you know, surrendering our gym membership and, you know, subscribing to a life of beer and pizza and TV, you know, we could think, why bother? You know, why bother to act? Why bother to create? Why bother even to love, we could think. And yet depression, like clinging, is another form of resistance to the reality of change. We could react to the reality of impermanence by becoming rather grim and distant from life. And yet, both life and the grimness, I'm afraid, are also impermanent. We could react to the truth of impermanence, as many do, by pursuing intensity as if we were going to squeeze every drop of possible pleasure out of life. And yet this, too, really doesn't protect us from the winds of change. The most common resistance to impermanence is the kind of denial that manifests as clinging. It can be a very gross form of clinging. We can make heroic efforts to defend ourselves against the shifting sands of life. We can amass more. We can build more. We can store more. We can cling more to everything that we have. We can tenaciously go through life proclaiming ourselves to ourselves and the world that this belongs to me. This is mine. This is who I am. We can go through life making a bigger and bigger story of I and me and mine, as if this protects us from life. But we have noticed that life really is not so obedient to our defenses. You've probably had that experience, perhaps, when you stand on the seashore, just where the waves come in. And you can feel as the waves go out the sand beneath your feet being sucked out with the waves. And it can feel as if you have no steadiness, no ground. Sometimes our protection is trying to defend ourselves against that feeling of our life running away beneath our feet sometimes the clinging is subtle. We cling to thoughts and ideas and self and opinions and beliefs and views. Sometimes in the face of impermanence, we can find ourselves becoming indifferent, which is a kind of fear. And I think the shadow side to letting go, the shadow side to non-clinging, is a kind of abandonment, where we tell ourselves that Nothing is going to last, so perhaps nothing really warrants my love or my commitment or my appreciation or my dedication. A couple of years ago, I was speaking with an 88-year-old woman who was truly heartbroken because her 92-year-old boyfriend had told her he wasn't ready to settle down. And there perhaps comes a time when we're able, even just for moments, to let go of all of that resistance and to really look at the truth of impermanence in the face, to embrace that simple truth of change and all its implications. And for me, there are really two pieces here. One is the fact the truth of impermanence, and the other piece is the insight into the truth of impermanence. And I don't think they are exactly the same. When we only see the reality of change without very deep insight or without any insight, then that seeing, it can indeed take us into the pathways of resistance, Making us more and more fearful and uneasy and controlling in our life. Seeing the truth of change, we can even feel that we suffer because of impermanence. But it is actually the insight into the truth of change that transforms our life. It really has the capacity to bring an end to suffering. And to bring a tremendous freedom and ease and spaciousness. Sometimes, you know, one person said, "When when death is imminent, our hearts open quickly and wide." There are, in my understanding, really three steps of insight. One, the first step, is the listening, and the intellectual, the conceptual agreement with what we hear. You know, if you sat there and I told you that everything is permanent, you would probably disagree. When you hear that everything will pass, that there are that the beginnings and endings of life are always interwoven we can agree. It makes sense to us, you know, intellectually, conceptually. We know that this is true. The second step of insight is a direct experience, the contemplation of what we hear and understand intellectually within the context of our own moment-to-moment experience. It is what we do here. We contemplate impermanence, in our bodies, in our feelings, in our minds, in our sights, in the sounds. We see everything that appears and disappears within us. We all, when we come here, of course, have our personal story, but we understand that beyond our personal story, there is this universal story. And part of that universal story that we are all part of, all share it is the story of change. <coughs> that nothing lasts, that nothing stays the same. Now we contemplate the way impermanence permeates all things, and we contemplate it over and over and over again. And you know, we all confess that at times we are slow learners. But with this contemplation over and over again, the insight into the truth of change begins to sink more and more deeply into our hearts. And this can take quite some sustained contemplation. As one elderly teacher said, I have reached the gates of old age, yet I still pretend to be young. Bless me and misguided beings like, we, like me that we may truly understand impermanence. I think in the, the very deep contemplation of change moment to moment in our lives, it does actually suddenly occur to us that this has something to do with me. Mm? It's not just about other people. This really has something to do with me. The third step of insight is the step of embodiment. Living in the spirit of impermanence. Living in the light of that understanding. And looking at the implications of impermanence. Now, at first, this is effortful, you know, in, midst, in the midst of some of our mind storms, in the midst of some of our emotional storms, in the midst of some of those places where we feel the most stuck, in the midst of this sorrow, this pain, this aching mind, this broken heart, this obsession that we're so convinced this is going to last forever, we start to remember that this is just not true. This really is just not so. And with that remembering, there comes just a little bit more space, and a little bit more ease. And with the continuing contemplation, the deepening of the understanding and the practice, that understanding becomes more effortless. And then there is vast space and vast ease. The marriage of insight and embodiment is a process. It's not an accident. You know, we don't wake up one morning and look in the mirror and see the Buddha staring back at us. It is not an accident. This is a process and a training. It's a practice that we cultivate in every area of our life. And we see that our capacity for embodiment of anything at all, whether it is loving kindness or compassion or letting go, is measured by the depth of our understanding, and the depth of our willingness. To read you a story that Ajahn Chah told about his practice. And in Thailand, as some of you may know, there's a very strong ghost culture. You know, ghosts are considered as real as you or I, you know, and there's more of them. And they're everywhere, you know, people put little ghost houses outside their house, you know, for the ghost to live in. And children are raised with the idea of gory, nasty ghosts that are always hovering around waiting to pounce on them. Sergeant Ajahn said that this was a fear that had been with him for a very long time, the fear of ghosts. So he decided to confront it by setting up camp in the forest near the burning ground where the villagers did their cremations. cremations. And the day that he decided to go there, there had been a, a, crema- a funeral of a young child. And as night fell, he said his mind was screaming. Don't do this. Next year would be better. (laughs) When my practice is more together. That first night, he willed himself to stay. Morning came with relief, and he found himself packing up his things, congratulating himself all the while. Then he realized he hadn't met his fear at all. He only endured it, so he resolved to stay another night. And that day there was another cremation. And he made the resolution to sit there and to be with his feelings, knowing that this was the best way to meet the fear. Night fell, the usual animal sounds. Suddenly he said, I hear footsteps, and it's coming from the fire. He reassured himself, just one of the villagers. Then the footsteps came closer. And in his mind, he saw a ghost circling him. He said he became rigid with fear. He felt a presence before him. Out of his panic, there came a thought. All all these years, I've been seeing and saying, the body is impermanent. Feelings, perceptions, thoughts are impermanent. The body is not self. Feelings, perceptions... Formation's consciousness is not self. Fear and this insight, this thought, sat side by side. The insight came to him that even if this ghoulish monster attacked me, all it can harm is not me. That that which knows all of these cannot be touched. He said the feelings of terror evaporated like suddenly touching a light. He went straight from fear to rapture. He heard the footsteps getting fainter. He never found out their source. Ajantra said he sat there till dawn, and during the night it poured, and tears of joy ran down his face and mixed with the rain. Nothing in the world could have moved him. brings up the question of where do we contemplate impermanence? Where do we contemplate the truth of change? Will we contemplate impermanence in in the midst of all of the places that we perceive and practice permanence? How do we know we are perceiving and practicing permanence? Because we are suffering. That is how we know it. There's so many dimensions of struggle we can experience. Fear, obsession, despair, resistance, craving, aversion. Why are we suffering? Because we are trying to grasp the ungraspable. Because we are trying to maintain the fleeting, trying to control the uncontrollable trying to get rid of what we dislike, trying to secure what we want. Where there is suffering, there is clinging. Where there is clinging, our understanding of impermanence has been lost and forgotten. This is a very simple formula. We speak so often of impermanence, I'm sure many of you get weary of hearing about it. So here's a better instruction. Contemplate permanence. Contemplate everything that stays the same, that is here forever. Try to keep the same thought in your mind. Try to sustain a sound. Eat lunch forever. And perhaps soon we would be convinced, really, of the futility of this endeavor. I think in contemplating impermanence, we really do begin to understand the difference between dukkha and sukha. Dukkha is translated sometimes as dis ease, there is never ease in a life that is governed by clinging and grasping. There is never ease when we live in a way in which we are separated from what is, resisting what is. There is never ease when we are fearful or anxious or uncertain. As long as we do not live in a way that is informed by the understanding of impermanence and its implications. I think when we truly understand the causes of disease, this disease is also not an accident. It is an outcome of clinging. When we understand the causes of disease and our understanding deepens, then I think we really begin to dedicate ourselves to understanding what is a life of sukha, what is a life of ease. We discover and begin to cultivate and nurture the spaciousness and the vastness that is really born of living in the light of, understand, of impermanence. <coughs> we let that understanding cha- of change really inform our attitude to life. Inform our relationship with people. Inform the relationship we have with our own body and mind and everything we experience within it. Our life invites us to live it, not to resist it, nor to try and keep it. What does the embodiment of impermanence really look like? Just as everything that appears has written on it the message that this too will pass, everything that appears equally has inscribed upon it the message, let go. Let go. Let go in all the places we hold, we grasp, we cling and how do we know we are holding and grasping and clinging? We've come to know that on a cellular level because we start to see the contractedness that is the inevitable companion to clinging. We know we are clinging because we feel stuck, because life feels stuck. And all the time in our practice, everything we do here is really a training in letting go. And it's a training that is so much needed. For most of us in our life, there is really no parity between how much we hold on to and how much we let go of. And that is why we feel so overly full. For most of us, we have so much, a longer history in clinging and grasping than in releasing. A longer history of holding than in letting go. And I think there are so many times in our life where we, we feel the weight and we feel the burden of all that we have held on to so tightly through our lives. We feel that burden when we find ourselves so preoccupied with the countless hurts and resentments and losses we may have experienced in our life. We feel the burden of our clinging in the anxiety we have about our past and about our future. And we feel that burden so heavily, I think, sometimes in our heart and mind. So we learn to train ourselves in letting go. We come back to just this breath. We come back to just this step, to breathe this step, to breathe this breath, to walk this step to be with just this sound, to be with just this sensation, just this sight, seeing not only the beginnings of things, but also the endings. Sometimes I think it is such a challenge for us in our life at times to learn how to make peace with the endings. And we do come to understand that our, our capacity to make peace with endings Is also our capacity to find freedom. Nagarjuna once said, Life flickers in the flurries of a thousand ills, more fragile than a bubble in a stream. In sleep, each breath departs and is again drawn in. How wondrous that we wake up still. I think there are so many ways that our capacity to let go makes our life more wondrous. Nothing, it seems, can be wondrous in this life if it is seen with the same eyes that have seen it a thousand times before. Nothing is wondrous if we're hearing it with the same ears telling us we've heard it a thousand times before. Nothing is wondrous if it's touched with the same hand and the same mind and felt with the same heart. It seems that there's so little that is wondrous if each time we meet a person or meet ourselves or meet the world and burden and surround that meeting with the story of its past, the story of its history, or with the agenda of how we wish it to be. In Fred's center in Switzerland, it's a meditation center that's perched on a mountainside. And when the clouds go in, the sun comes out. It is actually one of the most beautiful places in the world. And of course, I think when it was bought, they thought, it was amazing you know, to have this incredible, you know, stunning Alp staring you in the face every day. And they noticed sometimes in the summer retreats, there was nobody in the hall. And where were they? You know? They were out in these long walks, you know. They were out, out strolling up the mountainside, you know, down the valley, around the peaks, you know, gazing at the Alps. And one yogi told me you know, the first time they went there, you know, they, every day they would think, I'm not going to sit, you know, this is so beautiful, you know, I need to be out there in it, you know. And then she said, you know, the next time she went there, you know, she went in the same walks. And there was such anticipation, such, a, such a expectation to experience the same sense of delight. And she kept saying, why is it so flat? You know, why do I feel so flat? Why do I not feel that same delight, that same happiness, that same joy? And I think we forget that wonder is how we see, not in what we see. That our capacity to be delighted really lies in our capacity to see anew, and not through what we surround everything with, of what has gone by. Learning to let go, learning to put down the stories, the histories, the agendas, I think allows all things to be wondrous. I believe we do come to see that all the peace and the happiness that we wish for in this life is not born of all that we cling to. That is born of our all that we are willing to let go of. That the, we begin to see that the freedom of our awakening is really grounded in the cessation of clinging, in our capacity to let go. Contemplating change, deeply understanding it, opens the door to very profound insight and transformation we do start to see the fleeting nature of all things and and really understand that the only thing that keeps anything in place, the only thing that keeps anything fixed for more than a moment is our clinging and our story about it. And I think through understanding impermanence, we, we also begin to deeply understand the unsatisfactoriness, and often the pain that comes from trying to make our home in anything that is transient. And then we yearn for a deeper happiness, a deeper freedom, a deeper peace that is not so dependent on things that arise and pass. We do begin to understand that The painfulness of clinging and aversion and craving is so optional. It is so optional. It is like changing the climate of our minds. You know, the the Buddha was not the first person in his time who who left the order and the shelter of, of his story to live a homeless life. And it was not just the society he left, but he left this kind of society, the culture of the mind that was all about fixing things and about becoming and about having and about gaining and about possessing. And that was the homeless life, not just the geographical change. Just as one thing follows another, in life, and in our mind, so too does one insight follow another. Once we begin to ask the important questions of where will we really find lasting peace and happiness, when we ask ourselves what it really means to be awake in our life, when it's said that all things are impermanent, and that all things that are impermanent are unsatisfactory. It doesn't mean that they are bad or wrong, that they, are not, that they are to be rejected or devalued. In fact, I think understanding impermanence leads us quite the opposite, to treasure the moment as it is. Impermanence is not negative, nor is it positive. What is impermanent is unsatisfactory, because the impermanent cannot be relied upon for true security and happiness. We understand, actually, that we would like more permanence in this life. We would actually like many, many things to be more permanent. We would like to have a more permanent self. And yet, the permanence we seek for can't be separated from our story and our clinging. Then we we start to ask, if this is true, it's only really then the question arises, who are we apart from our story and apart from our clinging? Because we see this story is so present in our life, this story of me that we keep repeating and rewriting and editing and censoring, and yet it is a thought many thoughts, actually, (laughs) many thoughts that are born and that are dying, that are arising and passing moment to moment. I think our willingness to release, to learn, to let go within our story, too, opens us to a deeper state of unknowing, of not knowing, in which life can surprise us in which our capacity to be startled, our capacity to be surprised and touched and awed is deepened. That capacity to be surprised not only by the world around us, but by the world within us too. Perhaps our capacity to let go of some of the thoughts that make up our story is what really releases us that freedom to really be no one, to be present in a life, in a story that's actually never been told in exactly the same way before. The letting go that can seem so effortful in our practice does, with practice, become more effortless. The letting go is not motivated by foods or demands, but it starts to be motivated by joy and by happiness. The happiness of really not dwelling anywhere, and yet the happiness of resting deeply in the nature of all things. I'd like to end with just a short... Part of a poem is, I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me what it is you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. If we could have just a moment...